0: Previously, on Ruth, this uh, book keeps going and going, and the pace begins to pick up in chapter 2. In chapter 1, we saw Ruth's extended family. Uh, These people from the tribe of Elimelech travel, and then hardship fall upon them. All the men in the story die. All the women are left alive. Uh, Ruth's uh, sister-in-law goes back, uh, but Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. And there they sort of um, try to start life over again. And that's where Ruth chapter 2 picks up. If you have your Bible at home, I want to encourage you to uh, pull it out. Uh, If you uh, can't find your Bible because it's buried in the closet, I get it. Just pull up your phone, Google Ruth chapter 2, you'll get there. doesn't matter uh, what uh, translation you have. I want to encourage you to follow along. I'm going to hit up some points verse by verse as we walk through uh, this book of the Bible. So in verse 1 this man named Boaz is introduced. He's a a kinsman. He's a a close relative. The word kinsman in Hebrew is sort of difficult to translate. This will be the motif for the rest of this chapter. I'm going to keep coming back to the original Hebrew, and we're going to talk about how some of these words are uh, playful, how some of them are difficult to get our minds around. There's a lot of word play. I won't bore you with all of it. Um, But he's a a close relative. He's a a friend of her husband. It's unclear what this word kinsman means. He's probably from the clan of Elimelech, as the scripture talks about. He is um, part of this familial group. We need to remember that in the tribes of Israel, right? they were large groups of people called tribes. And within those tribes, they were comprised of clans. And so Elimelech is a clan of the tribe of Judah. Uh, This is kind of this bigger uh, people group. And uh, the tribes were responsible for a couple things. Excuse me, the clans were responsible for a couple things. They were responsible for settling conflict And they were probably responsible for mitigating law, as we'll find out later in the book of Ruth. Now, this uh, guy's name is Boaz. But when you look at the Hebrew, this is a fascinating thing about the original ancient language. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. It's all consonants. And so, when you're reading Ruth in Hebrew, his name literally is BZ. That's it. So, it could be Beuz, Bis, Boaz, Baz. You could insert any vowels you want between these consonants. We don't know. Later on, the Masoretics would dot these consonants, and that's how we get the vowels. It's just a fascinating thing about the language that we need, we need to remember, right? It wasn't written in English, and so it's hard to know sometimes where these people came from, who they were, what their names mean, uh, who are these people and these stories, and what does it mean for us today? So Boaz No one knows what it means. (laughs) It's only really found here in Ruth, and it's found in one other place in the Bible. In ancient times, it was not uncommon to name things of great importance. People would name mountains. People would name great cities. People would name great gates of the cities. People would name strong well-crafted architecture in particular pillars and there's two pillars in the old testament who get named and one is the pillar on the temple of solomon and its name is boaz so it's here this character named boaz and a, a pillar to god's temple that's named boaz and what does it mean? We don't know. A lot of scholars will say it means either strength or fleetness. It's this sort of ability of steadiness. Uh, it's hard to get into. There's two words sort of crunched in to describe Boaz in Hebrew. Gibor and Chagil. And it means military might or mighty force. So Boaz... This prominent rich man, as Ruth describes him, is like this strong, mighty force. He is this guy who's sort of the antithesis of this famine that's going on in the land. Boaz is this strength that leads his people. He is the strength that provides. He is sort of the model of provision in our story. And that's all just in verse chapter one. Uh, sorry, verse, uh, chapter one of, of chapter two. Also in there you have Ruth in verse two. It says, "In Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. So here still attached to her name is her identity. Still expressed here. And Ruth, notice, she takes the initiative to go and glean from the field. It's not Naomi telling her to go and glean. Now, gleaning, I know you all know what that means. It's a super common word. We use it all the time. Never. (laughs) It's this uh, uh, process in the ancient world of following behind the harvesters. They would harvest the grain, and then you could pick up what's left over. And it's uh, talked about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's written in to God's law that you should allow people to glean. This is really sort of their social security of that time and day. It is the welfare system of the state. Um, This is how they provide for those who cannot provide for themselves. It's the law. And Boaz, as a strong providing person, is a good law abiding Jew. And we'll see this metaphor of gleaning and provision throughout the rest of this chapter. This section, verses two through 17, will dramatically show us the power differential between those that have and those that have not. You have Naomi and Ruth who are desperate and cannot provide for themselves, and you have Boaz who can provide for his house and others. It shows the difference between poverty and vulnerability and riches and status. It'll come in contrast in all of this. Verse 3. I love the beginning of this verse. It says, So she went, she came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Those three words as it happened, are so rare in the Bible. They show up here, and I wonder if you've ever had one of these moments where, like, as it happened, you got a phone call for a job interview. Or, as it happened, that resume came across your desk, and you hired that person, and they were a perfect fit. Or, as it happened, you were in need, and your, your boss called you in and said, I need to give you a raise. Or, as it happened, you were out of diapers during the pandemic, and you went to HEB, and you got the last box. Or, as it happened, you were running out of bread again, and Kroger happened to have a pallet come in that day, and it just happens to be there. These three words, as it happened, this is God's hand providing. It's God's providence for these people in the story. And it continues for us today. In verse 6, we run across Ruth's designation again as a Moabite. And five times in this story, Moabite is going to be like slammed onto her name. She's not just Ruth, right? She's Ruth the Moabite, the Moabitess, that person from Moab. And it's like the author wants to keep reminding us of who Ruth is. She does not belong in the story. She's an alien, a foreigner, an illegal, I don't know what you want to call her. She's not a Jewish person, and she happens to be on the other side of the border in need. She doesn't belong there. Maybe the audience reading this perhaps is a little angry as they see Ruth getting treated so well Maybe they're thinking to themselves, well, I never got treated like that. Or there was a time when I was in need and my own people didn't help me, but they they helped her. That's absurd. The author wants us to be reminded of who Ruth is. In verse 8, it says, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field being reaped and followed behind them. I order the young men not to bother you. This word, not to bother you, is um, hotly debated, and I do not want to shy away from it. In ancient time, much like today, violence against women has always been an issue. And here you see Boaz taking on the role of the protector. Now, whether or not the author wants us to know that this is her being... The possibility of being physically accosted or just harassed, it's debated on the kind of spectrum of that word. Certainly there were people who were gleaning and they were harassed or sort of driven off from their gleaning in the fields, right? Uh, by the law, they're required to allow to come and glean, but that doesn't mean the workers can't shoo them away. doesn't mean the workers can't make it difficult for them. But you see Boaz taking on the role of protector, of guardian, of saying, don't do that to her as she's come and gleaned in my fields. And then verse 10, then she fell prostrate, which means she's laying down before Boaz with her face to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you would take notice to me when I'm a foreigner? why have i found favor in your sight this is a motif that's brought up again and again and again in the scriptures you see it in genesis and first and second samuel and first kings and esther let me find favor in your sight it's the sort of language that one would take towards a superior this is ruth saying i am not worthy of sort of the Praise, protection, and honor that you are bestowing on me. And so this question sort of bubbles up under the text. It's sort of um, at the sides encompassing all this encounter. Is Ruth just a foreigner and a pagan? Or is she a human being who has a real need? Is she a foreigner and a pagan, or is she a human being who has a real need? And Boaz has to wrestle with this question. As he's in charge of the field, he's in charge of this harvest, he gets to um, benefit from his hard work, and then someone comes along who needs help. He has to say, how can I provide for her? Or do I just provide for me and my house? And she can fend for herself. Verse 12, it says, May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. In the Psalms, we will hear this metaphor of God being like a hen, spreading out his wings and protecting his chicks. It's a metaphor that Jesus uses, again, in the New Testament. Paul will say, What you reap, you sow. And so there's this sort of economic language. May you have a full reward from God. May God bless you. May may you find favor in God's sight. May God repay you for what you've done. Sometimes in scripture it'll say, May God repay the evil that you have done. And it's assumed then that God will judge you if you've done evil. And so the same sort of yardstick of measurement is tossed up against Ruth. May God repay you, Ruth. And you can hear Ruth saying, may God repay you, Boaz. They're talking to each other about this sort of, may God reward you from what you've reaped and sown. And it raises the question, what has Boaz and what has Ruth sown? Well, what they've both sown is sort of this loving kindness. And so they're saying, may this loving kindness be repaid to you in full. In verse 14, it says, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of this bread and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he heaped up for her some parched grain. A couple things jump out to me from this verse. And the first is that this is above and beyond the law. The law only dictates that there should be corners left of the field, and that's what the um, immigrants can get. And then Boaz says, why don't you come over here and eat next to me? Now, I want you to hear sort of the undertones here. I think Boaz thinks she might be a little pretty. <laughs> Boaz is like, come on, you can come over here. I'll give you a little extra. But it's still a generous offer because in this time and day and age, I mean, if you didn't bring in extra barley and wheat, then that means people would go without. And so he's, he's blessing her. He's giving her more. In fact, he's giving her cooked meals already. In verse 16, we, we get a sort of a glimpse into the past talks about this handfuls of the bundles looking for the glean, and I'm sort of asking this question, what did this all look like if we could put ourselves in Ruth's shoes? In that day and time, people would gather the wheat or the barley with their left hand, and they'd have a sickle in their right, and they would cut that up. They would lay it down in bunches. The women would follow behind them and tie them up, and whatever fell out, that's what you could pick up off the ground. But Boaz says, why don't you just reach in there and grab a handful? Just take what you want. Uh, He's providing for her. In verse 17, we get this weird word, this weird measurement. Uh, It said that it was about an ephath of barley. This is a borrowed word, actually. It comes from the Egyptians, which makes sense, right? Because we will do well to remember that the Hebrew people spent a long time in Egypt. And so... Maybe they borrowed some of their language. Maybe they borrowed some of their units of measurement. Uh, but we all know what an ephath is, right? When you go to HEB, you say, I'd like an ephath of flour. Uh, it's totally there in the bulk uh, section, right? N- not at all. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a bushel, and it's still debated on how much that is. Whether it's 50, 60, 70, or 80 pounds, it's unsure. Uh, but it's not a lifetime supply, and it's not a day's supply. It's not even a week's supply. It's probably a month's supply that is provided for her. In verse 19, Naomi begins to connect the dots of what's going on. She, Ruth comes home and she says, where have you been? Whose field did you go to? She says, I went to this guy named Boaz. He gave me this food. He gave me this food. He gave me this cooked food. And Naomi's like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, 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 she begins to connect the dots and put it all together on who Boaz is. And then there's this weird word in verse 23 that we should not miss. Ruth says, so she stayed close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So to me, chapter 2 is very positive, There's this encounter between this man who provides, and it's great. But verse 23 says it's the end of the wheat and barley harvest. And we will remember what drove Ruth here in the first place, and that was famine. And now the harvest is done, and there's a question. Where will her food come from in the future? Who will provide for her in the future? How will she be able to care for herself and her mother-in-law. This whole entire end sequence, all this chapter of Ruth, really alludes to a couple things. It alludes to the story of Abraham traveling to find a wife for Isaac, and as such, it connects Ruth to sort of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ruth is now sort of hinged to these other figures. And so for me, as I read Ruth chapter 2, I have a few takeaways, some thoughts on ways that this text still speaks to us today. The first is the example that Boaz sets for his people and the way that he serves Ruth. He is generous upon generous. And he is a a model of what the Hebrew people would call chesed, this loving kindness. It's a motif that keeps coming up again and again in the book of Ruth. Um, Naomi says that Ruth is someone who shows loving kindness to her. that She's someone who shows loving kindness to her. ...to her dead husband. She's someone who shows loving kindness to all that she encounters. Boaz is someone who shows loving kindness. He's also this incredibly strong and wealthy figure. And in this time, today, as I see so many people going without, as unemployment is on the rise as social services are stretched thin, I think it is an opportunity for those of us who have wealth to show loving kindness to those in need. I think Boaz is a model for us to strive after and from our story. The second takeaway I have is that Ruth's faithfulness is being rewarded. We will remember just a a chapter earlier, she tells Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And Ruth doesn't know her people. (laughs) She doesn't know them on a first name basis. She's heard stories about them. Ruth's probably never even been there. But she chooses to be faithful to this covenant that she's made with Naomi's dead son. And so she's going to attach herself to Naomi and step out in faith. Ruth does not know where that stepping will lead her. But chapter 2 begins to show us the reward that Ruth gets for exhibiting faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but in this time when it's difficult to trust God... I think I can learn a little bit from Ruth that I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to know what to do next. I just need to step out in faith and trust that God will provide as God did for Ruth and our story. And the third and final takeaway that I have for us today, something that I've been thinking about as I read Ruth chapter two is that there is this whole entire backdrop happening Well, remember that the story doesn't begin with Boaz and the story doesn't begin with Ruth. The story begins with Naomi. And Naomi in chapter one is mad at God. She thinks that basically God has forgotten her. I don't want to spoil the story for you. But Naomi will actually never meet Boaz and the story of Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth will play a huge role in what happens to Naomi. I think we often forget that it's not about us and that there's a lot happening outside of our experience. And Naomi becomes sort of narrow-minded, narrow-sighted in her worldview. She thinks, God has forgotten about me. Meanwhile, God is at work in Boaz's life and Ruth's life, and it will profoundly impact Naomi's life. I wonder where God is at work in your life so that you can turn around and profoundly impact somebody else's life. I don't know about you, but this um, ancient old story written in the funny language <laughs> I think has a lot of truth for us today. There's a lot that's happening for us to consider and sit with as God continues to speak through his scripture. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.